All right. We are in a series on uh, the Corinthian letters. Um, last week I established that the overall theme was unity. Uh, a lot of the commentaries don't seem to get that. Paul's addressing unity from various perspectives all through this letter, this first letter. Uh, and he's admonishing them to be of one mind. Uh, he says that in verse uh, uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 10. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. This unity that he's uh, suggesting, we're going to see throughout the letter itself, that it's not about uniformity. He's not saying, I want you all exactly uh, thinking only the same thing and acting exactly the same in that sense, because he understands there's diversity. But diversity is not supposed to be division. And he is really talking to them about they're dividing up the body of Christ in an inappropriate way. And he'll talk about that from several perspectives. Uh, there is a oneness to be maintained in the spirit, and it's a relational unity which requires spiritual maturity to maintain. The problem is that the Corinthian congregation, as many congregations today, were fragmented by several, several things. One of them was their allegiance and identification to certain prominent ministers. They were boasting of themselves in terms of who their leader was, who baptized them, who was their teacher. You know, I knew Paul, I know Peter, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, Paul is arguing to them, because they were using that to say, I'm more significant, I'm more important, I'm more authentic, I'm more mature. Um, he was arguing that the unity message that we have is the cross. And that that message of the cross uh, that we all come by uh, is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Uh, because God's wisdom and man's wisdom are not the same. Uh, and so he tells them not to boast in men but to boast in their knowledge of the Lord. And his point is the worldly wisdom and prominence is meaningless to God and should be meaningless to us as well. We are called to be holy in the Lord and to be identified with Him as His body, as His people. Now that was last week. That's what the, the message was. Over the next two messages, today and next time, uh, we're covering the first four chapters of the book, and they're on this one aspect. So today really is a continuation of last week, and the culmination of it will be next week. Then we'll see him address unity in a somewhat different manner, but it's still about unity. So today we're at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and Paul is going to talk about his own experience with the Corinthian church. So we begin with the first five verses there. He says, When I came uh, to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now what Paul basically is saying is, I didn't come as an apologist or a rhetorician. I didn't come to give you a fancy, great message where you go, wow, that was fantastic. Because the presentation is not the issue. The issue is the message. And that message was the message of the cross. And Paul said, I didn't come to make sure that you were enamored with me. After all, I came to you in weakness. My strong point was not my speaking. I didn't come with great fancy words. I came with the knowledge that Jesus Christ had been crucified, raised from the dead. That's the gospel that he will refer to in in chapter 15. And he says, that was my primary focus. It is the message of the cross that brings us to God and it is not who we are. Uh, and, as he had said before, not many mighty are called, not many noble are called. This is not about a popularity uh, or an impression contest in the church. It's about the cross and our need of salvation in that context. So he says to them, I, when I came to you, I came in weakness and in fear and in trembling. Now this is a problem. This turned against Paul. There are Many people who would say later, you know, Paul talks really strong in his letters, but he's not much in person. He was probably not uh, very attractive in terms of his uh, looks or his personality. Uh, He, he, you know, he's a Pharisee. He's got some of that, uh, that training in him, and so he knows what he's talking about, but he... He believes that it's the Word of God, so do it, it's the Word of God. Not like Apollos, who is a good uh, rhetorician, and he really could could make you hang on every word, even though he didn't fully have the understanding of the message clear. And as I said, that's, that's a common problem among us as well. So what Paul does is he says... Uh, the message was to be in the power of the Spirit and the demonstration of the Spirit. It was not to be in human terms of persuasiveness. Uh, I believe that spiritual maturity is not found in these polished talents that uh, that we see a lot of people use. In fact, those things can often get in the way. So he continues now, Uh, Because he has been talking about the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. And he picks that theme back up again. And he says this in verses 6 to 8. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, a wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now Paul says, look, it's not that we're speaking foolishness. It appears foolishness 
to the natural man. But it is a wisdom that comes from God that isn't known by the elite. The elite of this world are building a world in their image. And they are trying to create a utopia of humanity. And that wisdom does not know God. That is what Paul had talked about in Romans 1. They knew God, but they didn't want to retain that knowledge of God. So they began to worship the creature rather than the creator. And they are altered. God gave them a reprobate mind to do those things which are inconvenient. Man's got his own way of doing things. He thinks that it's wise. Other men are convinced that he's wise. They follow them, but they haven't got a clue what God is actually doing. God has revealed that to babes and to foolish ones in the eyes of the world. And therefore, if you're looking for significant people in this world to follow the gospel, you're kidding yourself. And if they do follow the gospel, often they follow it because it makes them popular with a constituency, not because they're following the Lord. So he says, we speak to those who are spiritually mature. Now, we need to talk about spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is found more in humility than it is in elitism. Spiritual maturity is found in servanthood more than it is in leadership. I am almost up to here about Christian leadership. It is business principles applied with Bible verses that they baptized it with, and then they follow exactly what the business world does, claiming that it's spiritual principles. And it simply is not. And, and the churches are full of it, and the denominations are full of it. It's just everywhere, because deep, deep down, we're secular, and deep, deep down, we're American culture. We're not spiritually mature. And Paul's going to talk about spiritual maturity in this context. He says, the wisdom that's in the message is God's wisdom, and it's for the spiritual mature. He says this is a mystery, hidden, that was predestined before this present world was even created. It's not consistent with this present world. It's inconsistent with this present world, and that's important. If the rulers of this world, who are focused on leading in this world, had got it, they wouldn't have crucified Christ. They'd have known who he is and what God was doing. So the religious leaders and the political leaders uh, are not the object of this wisdom. Now, the spiritually mature know this wisdom, though they are not significant in the culture and they're not significant in the world. And he talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. He says, Just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, and the ear has not heard, and which has not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God has revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Now this is a fascinating passage. It's fascinating for a couple of reasons. 
If you have a New American Standard, you'll see that uh, Paul says, as it is written, he's clearly referring to Scripture. And then, if you look at the way it's structured in the NASB, uh, it's set apart as a quote. So what would you assume? This is an Old Testament verse. We should be able to go to it and find it. Good luck. You're not going to find this verse in the Old Testament. It's there, but you're not going to find it. Because it is in an entire book, not in a verse. And that book is the book of Isaiah. So I want you to turn with me. I'm just going to give you a hint at this. I believe that what Paul has done here is he's taken the book of Isaiah and he's condensed it into this statement. Because he's been reading the book of Isaiah, he knows that. Remember, the book of Isaiah is foundational to all the Gospels. The, the Gospel is mentioned in Isaiah. Isaiah is foundational to this. And that's where the wisdom of God is that he's talking about that's been revealed through the Spirit. But you won't find a verse that says this. So if you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 43. Now I could spend the rest of the day going through a bunch of verses in Isaiah. I'm just going to give you pieces. I'm just giving you, if you will, a couple of words that he is drawing from there. In 43, verses 18 and 19... God says, Behold, I will do something new. It will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, and he goes on. Now, I'm just pulling those two verses because I want you to see if you'll look at the broader context of this chapter, God is saying, I'm going to do something that you don't really understand. Now, he's been planning it from the beginning. But you, you're not going to get it. Then I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 52. In Isaiah chapter 52... Verse 15, he says, Thus he will sprinkle many nations, kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what they had not been told, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. What I'm doing isn't known by the kings and the high and mighty in this, in this world. Isaiah 64. Verse 4, from the days of old they have not been heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God beside you who acts in behalf of one who waits for him. And then Isaiah 65, verse 17, 
For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered nor come to mind. Now, if I took those verses and a lot of other verses from Isaiah in context, has to be done in context, and if I had read all of those and I fully understood the book of Isaiah, what Paul says would make perfect sense. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, which has not entered into the heart of man, all these things which God has prepared for those who love Him, not the high and mighty. Fascinating, isn't it? Most people believe there's a verse, that verse 9, you can go back and just find that verse. And it is there, but it's in a book. Remember that God gave us books to reveal to us, not verses. Got to be careful about verse theology. Book theology is, is what we need to have. Now, Paul has a very good working knowledge of the prophet Isaiah. We see it in all his writings. And he uses the book, not isolated verses, or even a direct quote, to demonstrate that God has put all this in writing, which is critical. Because he says, God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. He's not saying, I'm over here in the corner and the Spirit has just told me something. He's saying, I have been pouring over the Word of God and the spirit that inspired that word has illuminated me to see it in its big picture. And to know that God is doing something bigger than any of these hot shots know. And he has given it to the humble and to the weak, those who love him. And are the called according to his purpose. Called to be saints, as he has said. So what does Paul mean? He means God's given a revelation through his spirit and he's talking about the scriptures. Paul's claiming that God has revealed what he's doing and he's written it there and let us know. Not that he's doing something new that only Paul knows. See, that's the way we get it today. God talked to me and he told me this thing and I have a message for you. Okay? That's not what Paul's doing. That's why he says, as it is written, it's in the scripture. Now, this is my hobby horse. You'll forgive me for this. The more you know the Scripture, the more you know God. The less you know the Scripture, the less you know God. And people say, no, I had an experience with God. You can't prove that. You can't even prove that to yourself. Because the reality is, we only know the validity of our experience if it's consistent with the Scriptures. Which means we have to know the Scriptures. And if you know the Scriptures, you will interpret your experiences differently than if you use your experience to interpret the Scriptures. Which is what people do. And they shouldn't do that. So in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, Paul says, All Scripture is God-breathed. It's a funny Greek word. God breathed. We, in, we translate that inspired. But it's important to understand what that means. It doesn't mean, ooh, there's some inspiration in there. 
What he's saying is, all scripture is God speaking. I'm talking to you now. And as I talk to you, I am breathing out in order to form the word so you can hear. And the minute I stop breathing and just form the words, there is no speech. It is the Spirit of God that is the speaking of God through the Scriptures and the author of the Scriptures carried along the writers. That's what Peter says. We didn't follow any cunningly devised uh, fables when we told you. We actually had an experience of Jesus on the mount transformed and God speaking. But we have a more sure word of prophecy which was not done by their own interpretation, but holy men of God spoke as the Spirit carried them along. These scriptures are God speaking to us, and there is no shortcut. You can't use the force. That's not the Spirit. You can't use circumstances and feelings. That's paganism. The reality is the Word of God is the Word of God. But we let other people tell us. I think this is Paul's point. You, you're waiting for some hotshot to come in and tell you the Word. The hotshots don't know the Word. They're running their own show. We'll talk about that next week. The reality is this Word is accessible to us because we have the Spirit of God. I'm not talking individually. I'm talking communally, right? So, the scriptures are the inspired revelation from God. And in them, God tells his wisdom and he tells us his plan. And the spirit that gave the scriptures dwells in us to illuminate us. And that illumination is really important. And that's where he goes next. So, we get to uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 10. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have, not re we have received not the Spirit of the world but the Spirit which is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Now, what's he saying? Who knows what's going on in here? A.D. do No, <laughs> just kidding. I know, right? This, my Spirit knows what's really going on inside of me. You have to infer it. So you may have to say, what's going on with you? And then I say, right? Now you know. The Spirit knows and the Spirit reveals. And that's what he's saying. The Spirit of God knows the deep things of God and he has now revealed them through the Scriptures. But just the Scriptures alone won't work. So we get this next verse, verse 14. This is a critical verse. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, 
for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now let me back up to 13 so you get These words that we speak, not words taught by human wisdom, but by those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts, the thoughts of God and His Spirit, with spiritual words, words that are inspired. The natural man reading the Bible is going to read foolishness. Or he's going to read something that isn't there, and we're going to have a problem. So he's explaining that the natural man can't do this, but the one who is spiritual, he says, appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. The one who is spiritual and actually gets what the Scripture is saying isn't going to be gotten by others. No wonder they will seek in the latter years people who will tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear and tell them that's what God says. And they'll love it, thinking that they're following God. They're not following God. The ones who know God will say something and people go, oh, that can't be God. That's just nonsense. So he says... Who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? <laughs> Who's going to tell God what he needs? Nobody. But we have the mind of Christ. Remember? Be of one mind. The beginning of the first chapter. I want you on the same page. Not your mind. The mind of Christ. Now Paul will use that. Let this mind be in you. Which was also in Christ Jesus. Right? What was the essence of the mind of Christ? Humility in obedience to the Father. That he may be glorified above all. And he says he's revealed this to us to our glory. For if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. I mean, all the scripture comes together and makes sense when the Spirit illuminates it who inspired it. I mean, imagine if you could go to a book club and the author of the book was there to lead the discussion group. Be great to have a discussion group and that everybody does it. And then the author comes in and you say, well, what did you think of my book? And they say, all oh, this is, that's not what I wrote. <laughs> that's not what I was talking about. Yeah, well, we like what we think better. Welcome to the American church. I want to know what God has said. I want to know what His Spirit is saying. I want to know what He has predestined and revealed so that I know where we're headed. Now, He says, there's a problem here. And that begins with chapter 3. And I, brethren... Could not speak to you as spiritual men, but to men of flesh and to infants in Christ. He said, Look, when I came to you, you were natural people. And those of you who were believers were babies. And so 
I couldn't give you the deep things of God. The best I could do was give you the foundational stuff, and that foundational stuff is the biblical text. The milk, which is the Word. I know there are people who say there's meat in the Word and milk in the Word. That's nonsense. The Word is the milk. When you have internalized the milk so that you don't have to go to the bottle because you've internalized it, now the more spiritual things of the Spirit can, can be given to you because the language of the Spirit is the Word of God. Now, if you know four words in Spanish, how much can somebody who speaks Spanish tell you? If you know 12 verses of the Bible, how much can the Spirit talk to you? See, we don't hear the Spirit because we don't know the Spirit's language. We know the language of the flesh. We know the language of the circumstances. We know the language of the rumors that other Christians say. And we just copy that, repeat that, and follow that as a self-fulfilling prophecy and blame it all on God. And Paul says... That's being a baby. Now, you know how babies are. They mimic what they see around them. And that's what they were doing. And then they would latch on to one of the hot shots and say, I'm with him. He speaks for me. He says, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual men, but to, as men of flesh, natural men, or as infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it indeed, even now, you're not able to do it. What are you talking about? We're five or six years in the Lord. We come to the church every Sunday. We, you know, wait till you hear about our spiritual gifts. He's going to say, you kids, you're babies. You are still fleshly since there is zealous or jealousy. This is a word that means zeal and strife among you. Are you not flesh? Are you not just walking like regular people? The same stuff that's going on in you, in the Corinthian church, is going on outside of the church. It's just the human condition. When one of you says, I'm of Paul, and another says, I'm of Apollos, aren't you just men? Oh, I'm into this one, I'm into that one, I like him better, as if you could judge him. Well, I like the way they say it. Okay. It's easy to like what somebody says. You can like what I say or you can hate what I say without knowing what I said. You can only agree or disagree if you understand what I said. And they weren't seeking to understand. They were just seeking to like or dislike. So Paul then explains to them that their disunity is proving their immature. It's proving that they haven't grown in grace and in knowledge. They're just kind of stuck at this baby stage. I can't speak to you as spiritually wise men. The proof that you're unwise and immature is your disunity. You're zealous to the point of jealousy and strife, dividing what should be united, the body. You're locking into men as your focus, and you're identi identical to the natural fleshly world of unspiritual and unsaved men. 
So now he picks up in verse 5 and he's going to try to give them some understanding. So what then, notice he doesn't say who then. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, he was the first one there. Later coming from Ephesus, Apollos watered. But God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. But God who causes the growth. If you are developing spiritually, you really think it's a minister doing it? Got to be kidding me. Do they think they're doing it? That's a different issue. We'll see that next week. Man, when, when a plant, when you go out and plant a plant, you can stick it in the ground and you can water it, okay? You don't make it grow. That thing will either grow or it won't grow. Someone else is involved in that, right? And that's true spiritually. Now, the one who plants and the one who waters are one. See the unity? They're doing different things, but they're all one. What are they? They're servants. And each will receive his own reward according to his labor. We'll talk about that next week. But we are God's fellow workers, but you are God's field, you are God's building. Really important to understand something. The the church is not the clergy. The leadership of the church, what we call leadership, that's why I don't like that word, The leadership of the church is not the church. They're servants. In many cases, they're hirelings who don't care for the sheep. They're doing their job, some of them doing a career, but they're not what's significant. You're the people of God. He called you to himself. Imagine you have a, you have one of these, you know, every once in a while, somebody finds out they're going to have four kids or five kids. And they go, what are are we going to do? That's a lot of diapers to change, right? And so let's say they send out nurses to help the couple. Okay? And... So the, the kids are being taken care of by all these nurses to help the parents with that. Do you think that those parents are primarily focused on the nurses? No, they're focused on their kids. God's focused on his children, not the servants. This is like going into a restaurant. A really good meal is served and you go, boy, how about that fork and spoon? Those were really nice. It's just absurd. Now the world goes, oh. See, this is why I get the same problem when I, 
with tonight's the Grammys. I don't care about that either. Okay, when somebody does a good job singing, I appreciate it. But, you know, I, I put in my money and they sing a song for me. They're not significant. It's the hearing of the song. And, and people who know musicians know that when they get to the end of their career, everybody knows nobody cared really about them. They cared about the song. The world's got this idea that you can be significant and you can be important. And then we think that if somebody's important and significant, they know what they're talking about. And they don't. Reminds me of Tevia, right? If I were a rich man. He says, people will come and ask me questions, right? Questions that would cross a rabbi's eyes. He says, and it doesn't make any difference if I answer right or wrong. When you're rich, they think you really know. That's the world. That's the world. So, Paul says, these guys are nothing. Now, I want to catch you where, where Paul got that. Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, verse 7 to 10. We, we have a tendency to be Paulines and not Christians. I want to keep tying Paul back to Jesus. Because there's in the, in the academic world, there's this idea that, well, Jesus was more Jewish and Paul created a new religion. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Okay? He's, not, he's not going to be in contradiction to what Jesus teaches. And here we see him follow, he knows exactly what Jesus taught. Chapter 17, verse 7. Which of you, this is Jesus talking, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? <laughs> no, this, you're my servant, right? He will say to him, prepare something for me to eat, and then clothe yourself and serve me, while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink. He doesn't thank the slave because he did that which was commanded. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say we are unworthy slaves, we have done only what we ought to have done. Wow. If I appropriately teach the scriptures, it's nothing to say, wow, you did a good job on that. One day, hopefully, the Lord will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. There will be a judgment of what I've taught. I can't get my eyes off of it to get on you or I'll start doing what pleases you. When I'm here, I have to do what pleases the Lord. That's not how we do it. We live in a marketing world now. Christianity Today and Barna and all these people are telling us, here's how pastors can uh, increase their influence in their ministry, again, using business principles and marketing principles. Not truth. People will respond better to this. 
So do that. That's the Apollos problem. So Paul says the servants are one. And they aren't significant. You're significant. You're the focus of God. Now, where, he, where he's going, and we'll look at this next week, is Paul says, now we have to be careful what we do. We teachers. Because we're going to stand and be judged for that. Okay? Now, that tells you something. That should tell you something. If I'm going to be judged for how well I teach the scriptures, it means it's possible I'm not teaching them well. And that should give you pause. To who are you listening to? And are you listening because he sounds good? Or are you listening because what he says and what he lives is showing evidence that he knows the truth? And to do that, you've got to know me. You can't just see me on TV. Because I can be anybody on TV. I can be anybody on the radio. Really hard to be impressive in my house. And it's hard to be impressive in a congregation where people know you. So then the issue is, do we re- are we really struggling with the truth of God's word to live it and to do it? And are we encouraging one another in that way? If so, then that judgment may be good for us. Otherwise, it may be a bad thing. So he's going to talk about that. We're going to cover that next week when we do the rest of chapter 3 and chapter 4 where he talks about the stewardship of ministry and the judgment of ministry. So let me just conclude this here. The servants are working for God as servants, not as lords. You believers are God's house. You are God's field. You're God's focus. And God has sent the ministers for your benefit, not you for their benefit. Going to go to another church because they'll pay me more. Or these people won't do anything. I'm going to go where they'll do it. That's where the pastor thinks the church is there for his benefit. You guys are almost all parents. You know that anybody who has kids for their benefit is foolish. Because they're all high maintenance. And they're going to take the best years of your life to get them raised and hopefully to get them out. Right? You're there for them. They're not there for you. If you raise your children as if they're there for you, you're a lousy parent. And if a pastor or church leaders think that the church is there for them, they're missing the point. In the same way that if the people divide up and pick the leader that they like best, instead of who's giving me truth so I'll grow. You, you may not always have liked your parents. 
And sometimes the parts of them you didn't like are the things you benefit the best now. That's, that's where there's a parallel between pastoring and parenting. So God wants a united people who love one another and are built up as a temple for his Holy Spirit to dwell in. The ministers are there to facilitate that unity, not to divide the body or draw followers after themselves. And we're going to see next week how God's going to judge that. And that should be a fearful thing to those who teach. That's why James says, be not many teachers, knowing we shall receive a greater condemnation. Let's pray.